a few weeks in early spring, the only sounds that I heard were those of songbirds and sirens. The country battled to protect the NHS, save the lives of people struggling to breathe. The world was being forced to stop, pause and let the planet draw a collective breath. I'm Ros Miller, a mid-career medic who found herself disillusioned about healthcare in the UK long before the lockdown of 2020. Songbirds and Sirens is for anyone interested in the biggest challenges medics face today. How to practice the basic tenets of being a good doctor, simply caring for people safely, while simultaneously delivering the latest medical advances in a world of rapidly changing technology and instant gratification. From the highlands of Scotland to the hidden doors of Harley Street, I have found two consistent things. One, medics don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to do a bad job. Exactly the opposite. We want to help people, to have the time to care for our patients and to do our very best for them. And number two, patients, regardless of whether they are down and out or a dame, all crave exactly the same things. To be seen, to be heard, and to know that for a moment in time, at least someone cares. Songbirds and Sirens is the start of a conversation society needs to have with itself. For me, it's the chance to catch up with colleagues and some friends to find out how the last few months have changed their perspectives and influenced their values. Hello, good day. I'm Mark Meyerson. I'm the medical director of Steps to Walk. We are a global humanitarian organization which delivers treatment to individuals with crippling foot and ankle deformities in underserved regions of the world, whilst simultaneously educating the orthopedic surgeons in those communities. Fantastic. So you've been an orthopedic surgeon for obviously only about five years because you still look incredibly young, fit and more healthy than anybody that I know. But tell me, first of all, when did you first become aware of COVID or coronavirus? So this was at the very beginning of the year during the first news reports, probably around about January, the evidence started coming in and of course, as time continued, we suddenly became aware of the impact of COVID on our organization's activities globally, so that in January, we had two international programs scheduled. In February, we had two. And in March, we had one. Each month, things were getting more and more complicated, and some countries were already reporting cases by early January. So as international visiting surgeons, we had to be mindful for our own safety and security, as well as those of the surgeon volunteers who participated with us on these programs. By mid-February, we began to realize that we had a problem the two programs we ran in, in February, they were very successful, one of which was in Sri Lanka. However, we became aware that things were going to have to change. And during our last program, which was in Brazil, 
the second week in March, all of a sudden there was word coming to us while we were working in Brazil that the U.S. was considering closing down international borders for people from certain countries, which were already impacting us. This had begun to impact some of our volunteers in January and February because some of our volunteers were from China. So they were already blocked from participating in our international humanitarian programs in January and February. So this became quite an issue. And we had to rethink the way we were working. Typically, the type of care that we provide is done on a standardized program. So it's a one-week program. We take four international surgeons with us. These are volunteers from around the world. And we include the local leadership of orthopedic foot and ankle surgery. So we have a team of about six or seven surgeons. That week is divided into training, teaching, and really the emphasis the whole week is on education because there are about 25 surgeons from the country that are invited or who apply to participate in the program. And the first day, which is lectures and conferences, is directed to them. The second day, which is patient examination, is done with bedside teaching, all focusing really on the participating surgeon. And then the next two days, we have live surgeries, which is broadcast into a conference room, again, focusing on the participating surgeon. And the last day is a cadaver day and or conferences. And these type of programs were clearly not going to be viable for us. And by the middle of March, upon my return to the U.S., I realized that we were having problems. At that time, the international program director, Dr. Xuyan Li, she proposed that we change the entire basis of operations. She manages all of our programming and she felt that clearly it was not going to be safe, predictable, nor viable for us to continue with that model. So we began to shift our thinking to a web-based education for the remainder of this year or until the world begins to change. And that led us to the next round of educational opportunities, as it were. And had you always planned on taking some of this online or was the plan always to be very much delivered in a didactic personal way? Yeah prior to this we had discussed the need for online education and our role as a humanitarian educational organization to provide it but it never became reality. Uh, The reality was forced upon us. Yeah. And what do you think the block was to you having done that sooner had COVID not come along and when do you think you might have started to do some more online or web-based type teaching? Bear in mind that the world is changing with or without COVID. The service that we provide, if you go back to the history of our organization and the humanitarian service that we have 
provided historically, let's go back, let's say a decade, for the first five years, it was patient-driven because that's what we all think about as humanitarian service, the need to improve the lives of individuals with crippling foot and ankle deformities. It makes us feel good as surgeons, and it improves the lives of these children and adults with horrible disabling deformities. So, of course, that was the emphasis at the beginning. But very soon we realized that in order for us to have a sustainable organization and to have continuity of service and provide a service that is sustainable, we had to return on a regular basis to the same location and provide education so that by educating and involving the regional surgeons, we wouldn't just be treating a handful of patients, but would be able to expand our reach to thousands, ultimately really having a significant impact. So that being the development of it, historically, you also realize that prior to COVID, things were changing. The economy of the world around us is changing. Education has been changing. The model, let's go back six years. Prior to that time, there was very little in the way of online education provided, whether it be by webinars, online educational modules, lectures, transcripts. And that changed with the advent of a few organizations that began to actively provide that as a service, recognizing that this was very easy. Why not educate people, make it easy for them? Most organizations provided the service free of charge. Some societies did and still do charge for these webinars. I don't think that that's appropriate. That's just their economic policy. Then, of course, things changed. <laughs> and it was probably towards the beginning of April. So I'd only been back for two and a half weeks from our last program in Brazil when Xuan Li and I, we were talking about the need to get out there. All of a sudden, there was this desperate need. Everybody was locked down. Nobody was working. And if they were working, they were working not as orthopedic surgeons, other than through providing emergency care. Elective surgery was gone so that we had a captive audience for a period of time. I didn't know how long this would continue for. So with that, we began to plan a World Congress. This had never been done before. We decided that if we organized this with a certain amount of creativity and energy, we could really get something to happen. And it did. Eventually, it was only three and a half weeks later that we held this International World Congress, and we had over 8,000 surgeons registered for this event. And we provided continuous streaming based on the time zones of the world for there was 36 hours of programming. Yeah. So that was very successful. Now, of course, we're faced with 
a slightly different challenge. How do you continue with this? Because now the world has changed. Of course, for me personally, as the medical director of the organization and founder, I still want to use my hands and get there and do the hands-on work, surgical correction, see its effect on individuals with deformities. But we're not able to do that. And so we've come up with a lot of very innovative ways to continue providing an educational opportunity for surgeons around the world, and in particular, focusing on those programs which have been canceled this year. These programs uh, that we're now holding are offered in multiple languages. Some of them were simultaneous translations. Some of them, we select faculty who are multilingual, and we provide these webinars. But they're carefully done so that they're different from the standard webinars that many people are accustomed to, even currently, where you give a lecture, goodbye. You know, it's a lecture, goodbye. And that's not the future of education. The future of education, I think, has to be interactive. You have to provide a service by just giving someone a lecture. Sooner or later, that's going to die. You have to continue with a certain passion and energy as an educator to provide this in a creative way. In a career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, working both in the National Health Service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope, and most importantly, an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies, and not the media, to decide what our collective future should be. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more, or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch. Mm -hmm.